everyone, Karen Weaver here. What a week it's been. In the middle of a pandemic, the city of Minneapolis is undergoing a traumatic scene of protests and violence all over this, the unfortunate uh, death and passing of George Floyd at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer. It has created a lot of tension, not only in Minneapolis and the other Twin City, St. Paul, but also in cities around the country. And this week, I was fortunate enough to interview Michael Shu, who is a regent at the University of Minnesota and a longtime Minnesota native. We started off the conversation talking about what this means to Minneapolis and also what this means to the University of Minnesota. As earlier this week, University President Joan Gable put out a letter to everybody in the university community indicating that the university, which is housed in Minneapolis, is cutting all ties with the Minneapolis Police Department, a wholly unusual decision. So I talked with Michael about that and also about his role on the board. Um, I think you'll find the conversation interesting and everybody, please stay safe out there. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today, we're so fortunate to have a guest who's going to bring us a couple different perspectives on oversight and fiduciary responsibilities for intercollegiate athletics on a Big Ten campus. Michael Shu is a 1988 graduate of the University of Minnesota with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. He is currently the president of T-Master Corporation, which he co-founded and he also attended the University of Chicago's Booth Graduate School of Business. Michael has been a trustee since 2015 at the University of Minnesota, and his term ends in 2021. Do I have that right, Michael? That is correct. Okay. And so my first question to you is, you're in Minneapolis, and we are in the middle of one of the most um, difficult um, public reactions to a the, the killing of an African-American man on the streets of Minneapolis, not far from the campus. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. I, I don't live um, that near, uh, that close to where all, where all this occurred and near campus. And um, I, I am concerned about it. Uh, the third precinct is, you know, it's several miles from campus. Um, and it's not actually the precinct that um, helps uh, helps us patrol the uh, area around campus. That's the second precinct. So um, in terms of, you know, what's going on here, I think it's tragic. I think it's um, one of those things where, you know, the city of Minneapolis or actually the, the not just Minneapolis because uh, the uh, Philando Castile um, situation occurred actually across the street from our St. Paul campus. Um, uh, but it was, um, the, uh, it was a small, uh, St. Anthony was the police department that was involved in that one. So it's not just the city of Minneapolis, um, but in, in last night's um, events, uh, in the rioting and protesting, uh, the city of St. Paul was actually um, treated very poorly. And, uh, you know, the governor has called out the National Guard. I'm, I'm actually probably about 10 minutes north of um, where the, um, closest events occurred uh, around where I live. And that's in a shopping center called Northtown Mall in Blaine. And uh, there was, uh, there's a Tub Foods there, I think that, uh, you know, had some problems and 
maybe uh, some looting, but you know, <laughs> I haven't been there, so I don't know exactly what happened. I did see the news where um, one of the news stations was uh, they were covering it last night. So oh, I was up pretty late last night watching it on TV. Yeah, no, it's very it's very distressing. And as I shared with you, I I, I worked at the University of Minnesota back in the early 2000s and only lived about 15 blocks from where most of this is happening. So it's very um, right. distressing to me as well. Um, President Joan Gable sent out a very interesting and I would think somewhat unexpected letter to the whole Golden Gopher community just uh, yesterday, I think. Um, and that letter basically said that the university was cutting ties with the Minneapolis police force. Um, can you give us your response as a trustee to that? Well, I, I really don't know anything about it. Uh, I was given um, a heads up. It, it all started with a letter from um, the president of our um, uh, student association, undergraduate student association. I think it was a couple of days ago, actually. And um, the res her response, um, Joan uh, Gable's response uh, was basically that we're going to not use uh, Minneapolis police for to handle any of our big events. And you know, as a as as a trustee or as uh, someone who provide, provides oversight for the university, first of all, right now we don't have any big events coming up. We don't, <laughs> you know, maybe we'll have football in the fall. Um, in basketball and hockey and those types of things. Those are the biggest events that we uh, typically have on campus. I'm not sure how we're going to handle things without them, but we also have another big city, um, St. Paul, which is um, just uh, a little bit to the east of us that uh, you know has a lot of officers that can provide support. But this is mostly, I mean, I think a lot of people misunderstood what she said in the um, actual uh, announcement. I think there are uh, there are definitely places where um, we have to work together because we are in the city of Minneapolis, and as I said, we're we're in the second precinct, and you know they um, most of the things that happen to um, uh, students who live off of our campus are um, in the second district. So, you know whether or not there's uh, crime or um, those types of things that uh, are typically handled by the uh, second precinct of the Minneapolis Police Department, those will continue to happen. It's just, uh, you know, I think bomb sniffing dogs and, you know, other types of manpower that they need. And, um, you know, the cameras and stuff, I think, are useful that uh, they provide. But I'm not sure exactly what these agreements uh, hold. Um, obviously, I've asked questions about, you know, how this decision was reached and um, actually um, asked for the contracts themselves because I don't know anything specific about them. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good for you to be involved and to ask the questions. And um, I'd like to transition into the original reason we were going to have the conversation and also to start right up front and say, you are speaking on behalf of yourself and you're not speaking on behalf of the regents. Yes. Uh, and I think it's important for our listeners to understand that. So, um, you, you joined the board back in 2015. What motivated you to join and become a region at the university? Well, I, as, a, as an alum of the university, you know, back in the, the 80s, I, I was aware of um, what the regents did and, and all, that, all that kind of stuff. Most people are not aware of what goes on um, at the Board of Regents level. But we had quite a few um, uh, scandals at the time uh, as I was leaving the university. Um, and uh, I, the Board of Regents was 
really prominently, um, um, you know, involved in, in a lot of these um, activities going on, you know, mostly involving money. Um, since then, you know, we've had a lot of problems in athletics. Um, and actually, we had problems earlier than that in athletics. In fact, we um, sued the NCAA uh, at one time and sued the Big Ten Conference at one time uh, for various things. So, I mean, I was aware of kind of what a regent was um, back in the early days of uh, you know, my student experience. And then, you know, having been engaged with the university um, uh, on numerous levels, um, primarily involving Greek life um, uh, as an alum, you know, I was kind of aware of what was going on at the university. And, you know, there, there happened to be uh, an opportunity where the uh, the regent that had I'm in the sixth district, uh, which is um, one of the um, one of the eight districts that you know are uh, congr congressional districts that uh, that we have, and then we have four more regents at large. So um, it just so happened that I live in the sixth district, and the sixth district regent had served 12 years and was not running again, so it was an open seat effectively, and I decided to check it out, try it out. And, um, you know, I got elected the first time, fortunately or unfortunately. <laughs> what have you found most surprising about being a regent? Well, you know, I, you said uh, a little bit about my background, but having um, worked as a management consultant for a number of years and uh, worked in business after that, started some companies, um, I, I just looked at it as kind of one of these things where you, you go and you you um, you find out what the problems are, you get some information, you know, do some analysis, and you know, figure out how to fix the problem. And unfortunately, it's not it's not that way at all. There's a lot of politics involved. There are a lot of um, uh, cultural uh, things that uh, you know. Well, we always do things this way. You know, this is how we do things. This is what our peers are doing. And I guess the most shocking thing is the fact that uh, the University of Minnesota um, tends to look around at our peers and we follow, we're followers, we're not leaders here. And um, that's one of the things I've tried to change. I, I, don't, um, I don't agree with kind of the status quo of a lot of uh, the rationales given for uh, things that are happening here, um, you know, in, in athletics and outside of athletics. So I've I've been a little bit frustrated, but, you know, I've also um, tried to change things and I've been successful at some level. So it's, uh, so it's been good from that perspective. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation because the Big Ten is sort of perceived as this monolithic conference, but inside of it, there are a lot of institutional um, differences and there are, there are institutions that carry more sway than others, even though there's a, supposed to be a, a level playing field between 14 different institutions. Yes. Uh, well, 14, now it's 14 and it was 10. And um, we, we have the uh, fortunate status of being one of the uh, founders of it or one of the uh, first uh, members. Um, and financially that's benefited us a great deal. Um, in, in terms of in terms of athletics, um, I think the biggest surprise to me is um, how much money there is involved in it. I mean, from from an institutional perspective, it's only about two two and a half three percent of our budget, so it's not huge from that perspective. But it it does get 
a lot of uh, attention. We have, you know, we're, we're always mentioned in any local news broadcast. You know, there's always time reserved for the university in terms of sports um, and what we're, what we're doing, whether we're doing well or not. Um, you know, so there's always a lot of attention around athletics, as you know. And the, the in, interesting thing about it is um, a couple of athletic directors go, let's go back to 2012. Our budget was about $80 million. Now our budget is about $125 million in just eight years. And um, the, the, problem, the problem with that is we tend to always spend whatever money we have. We don't have reserves for athletics typically. Uh, one of the things that um, I was uh, successful in, in putting in place was um, the board approval of athletic contracts. And um, we used to have this back until like the 19, early 1990s. And then uh, we had a president uh, who uh, decided that he wanted to ask the board to not approve uh, coaches' contracts. And um, the board chair at the time uh, in the discussion said, well, these are, these are getting to be pretty big contracts. We, you know, are, are, you, are you serious that you, you don't think we should, you know, approve the biggest ones? And he said, oh, for sure I would bring those to you. So later on it got, it got approved and it actually, there are actually some, uh, some backstops there where if a contract is over a certain amount, it has to be approved by the board. And this is any contract that we have, not just athletic contracts. But when I joined the board, um, there were a, a number of contracts that came to us and we found out that very quickly um, that we weren't approving them. They were just kind of there and we were told that they were signed and you know that was it. And I looked at them and I said, well, wait a second, these, these are over a certain amount. Why aren't we approving them? And of course they said, well, they're not on the list. And I said, right, they're not on the list. And so I did some research and the funny thing is, is if you go back to the president uh, who, uh, it was Niels Hasselmoen, uh, who actually asked for that change in the, the uh, policy, he actually brought no contracts to us after the fact, after the, uh, it was changed. And so we actually approved no contracts, no coaches contracts from like 1996 or 97 uh, up until like 2017 or 2018. And so what happened is I actually brought a resolution to approve contracts. And um, I actually said any, any agreement with, you know, which include doctors and um, anybody making above a certain amount of money. And of course, people went crazy and they said, well, we can't do that. And it took us um, roughly two years. And I think we finally approved an agreement or a policy change that would allow us to approve uh, contracts over a certain dollar threshold. And um, during that time, the president at the time did bring those to us for approval. But the funny thing is, is their approval after the fact. Yeah. So what happens now is there, it, there's some verbiage in the contract that gets signed. So you hire a coach, you sign a contract, and it says subject to region approval. Of course, they're already on the ground working by the time we get a chance to approve it. So it's kind of, you know, we, we do have approval, although no one has really said, well, what happens if we actually don't approve the contract after the, the coach has been here working for two months? Yeah. Now, we could take care of that by having an emergency approval, but nobody wants to have an emergency approval of a coach's contract. So... 
So, I mean, there's, there's all this, these politics around um, what to do in terms of coaches' contracts. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because, again, trustees and regents are charged with being the fiduciaries, which means you're supposed to hold the institution, uh, protect as much as possible in terms of legal and risk management, financial, uh, help make decisions that'll be complex and complicated so that you can provide solid advice for the, the president of the institution. So in one of the most visible arms of the institution, it feels a little bit like you're being sidelined. Is, is, am I accurate in that? Oh, yes. The culture, the culture when I came on was you're basically not, not involved in any athletics decisions. Hmm. And that is the cultural thing. Uh, that's the way it has been. But, you know, I, I look at that and I say, well, maybe there's a reason why we haven't won a national championship in football since 1960. You know, <laughs> it's, it's going on 60 years this year. So um, I think there, there has been, and every institution uh, typically uh, goes through something like this where you end up with um, a president who really isn't interested in athletics, right? And so then um, athletics doesn't get any um, of the things that it needs uh, for a certain period of time. Well, the University of Minnesota um, had not done well in football for you know, we won a Big Ten championship. It was actually a tie, uh, a three-way tie, I think, in 1967. So that was, you know, when I was, when, after I joined the board, it was approaching 50 years, which I think is way too long. Yeah. And so I've been very uh, supportive of athletics. Um, we uh, approved the new uh, Athletes Village um, shortly after I came on the board. And that was, you know, that's about $190 million effort um, primarily for uh, football, a, f in, a new football indoor uh, facility, a back, uh, basketball facilities for men's and women's, and that freed up some other space for um, all the other sports. Uh, so it, it's, it's a big investment, but it was, uh, it's supposed to be 100% uh, donor funded. So when you have a situation like that and you have people who are just um, you know, they have a thirst for, you know, being successful in athletics. And, you know, we have a lot of alums who have um, waited a long time for success in, in sports. Now, we've had some national championships. We've had, you know, a hockey national championship. It's, it's going on, you know, almost 20 years for that. But um, we also have another campus um, in Duluth. UMD, and we are we have won two national championships back to back in hockey, so it's an, so it's a very interesting kind of dynamic. But basically, the regents have been closed out of any discussions. And when I first when I joined the board, I said, "Why don't we have a, a committee for athletics?" And I was basically told that you know that culturally the 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 president isn't very supportive of that, um, and uh, the the university hasn't had one for a long time. So, and, it's, and when you were here, we had, uh, you, you were here before we merged the men's and women's department. No, right? I was there actually with the merger. Oh. I was, okay, I, was were, I overlapped it. Yeah, I was two oh, years came. in the women's and then two years in the men's. Right, and, so you, yeah. you started here before the merger and then. Correct, yes. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, so Michael, one of the things you did recently was you made a proposal, a resolution that was interesting. And you said um, that you would not permit the NCAA to interfere with athletes getting, quote, financial support from any source to cover food, shelter, 
medical and insurance costs until the COVID-19 crisis ends. Um, what prompted you bring that forward and what has been the reaction? Well, um, what the, the thing that prompted me is the, the fact that um, athletes are not being treated the same as any other student. You know, and I, I use the example uh, of, you know, someone needing uh, food or even toilet paper and not being able to get it um, from somebody because of the limitations on uh, benefits from uh, the NCAA. So I just kind of, all I did was ask for, um, I called for the, the Board of Regents. We are members of the NCAA, although we're not treated as members because um, the NCAA wants the presidents to speak for the institutions. But when the presidents don't even talk to the regents about what's going on <laughs> in athletics, yeah. it's kind of hard for, for us to have any oversight, right? So all I did was ask for the, the board to um, call for the NCAA to allow these things to happen until the COVID-19 um, pandemic uh, is subsided. So I think that's a reasonable thing. We, uh, we should be treating um, college athletes the same as we treat other uh, college students. And in this case, um, if someone is um, unable to get enough resources, uh, basic resources, I think they should be able to get it without um, crossing some line that the NCAA has created and potentially um, harming the, their eligibility. Where is that resolution today? Well, so the way the, re the resolution, uh, so I brought a resolution um, in our meeting uh, under new business and um, our general counsel who has uh, a, a responsibility for compliance um, wrote us a memo Actually, uh, someone in his department um, in compliance wrote a memo to us. And it's interesting because the, the memo, um, actually, if you read it, uh, the way I read it, uh, the, the NCAA in, in March had already kind of given um, the schools the ability to, um, to uh, you know, not follow some of these rules. And... I, the way I read it is that we should be um, taking advantage of this to uh, give our students the ability to, to uh, go out and get some of these benefits from other people. Now, what, what we've done is we've been giving them uh, these, uh, so the support, financial support in some cases, you know, flying them home if they're, if they need to go home, um, if they didn't, if they couldn't afford it, you know, we have had a, uh, the assistance fund that uh, allows them to use it for that purpose, feeding them. Um, I'm not sure how it works. I've asked questions on, well, what, what exactly are we doing? How many students are we talking about? Um, why aren't we uh, doing more for them? And uh, right now that all I have is the memo and I've um, requested um, answers to questions uh, regarding the memo. But basically I see what the NCAA, I wish I had it in front of me. I probably do somewhere here. But if, um, actually I do have it here. So let me just read this if I could. Sure. One of the things quoted in uh, this memo, it says, uh, and this is from a statement on March 12, 2020. It says, NCAA Academic and Membership Affairs, AMA, has received numerous questions regarding the implication of actions 
conferences and institutions have taken or might take in response to COVID-19. These questions have related to a wide range of regulations, including eligibility, membership requirements, and student athlete benefits. Most importantly, conferences and institutions are encouraged to make decisions and take action in the best interest of their student athletes and communities. Conferences and institutions should not be concerned about the application of NCAA legislation when decisions are being made in response to COVID-19. So I look at that and I say, well, yeah, maybe they've really already done what I'm asking for, but I don't know that anybody at our university has interpreted it that way and, and has communicated to the students that it's okay for you to receive food and, you know, toilet paper maybe from a neighbor, you know, or a donor or some, someone else other than the university. And this memo goes on to say that the university has um, helped a lot of our um, athletes out, but I'm looking for detail on that and I'm looking for um, whether or not my resolution is, is actually necessary. I, I may change the resolution to actually take advantage of that text and, um, and actually explain to the athletes what, uh, you know, what other benefits they're uh, able to receive from other people. Yeah. It sort of seems um, incredible that we're actually having these discussions when we know that there are there are athletes out there that whose families are in are in real financial trouble due to losing their jobs because of the pandemic, losing their health insurance because of the pandemic, and so to be able to step up seems like the least you should be able to do. Right, and then the other part of it is, I don't know if you realize this, but everybody's trying to make football happen this yeah. year. Yeah, I do. And <laughs> there's a reason there's a reason for that and it's money <laughs> and it's billions uh, in fact some some uh, um, news outlet did a did a analysis and they found that it may be up to four billion dollars a right. year of value to uh, athletic uh, departments well the the thing is is people and this these are things that I've learned since I've become a region but most people probably already knew them or know them now which is football, basketball, and to some extent hockey, pays for everything else. The University of Minnesota has 25 sports. We have the eighth biggest budget in our conference, um, but we have the fourth largest number, or fourth, we're fourth in terms of number of sports. Okay, the other thing I've learned uh, that most people don't realize is that athletics is not completely self-funding. Right. At the University of Minnesota, we have $7 million of um, allocation that we get from the state. So the state gives us a pot of money and we allocate it. We give $7 million to athletics. Now, originally, that was like, there was $3 million given to us from the state when you were here um, to support women's athletics. That's right. And Title IX. Well, so what they've done is they, they've continued, the administration has continued um, to give that money and they, you know, it's increased by, you know, more than 100% over that period of time since the 70s or 80s and um, basically decided to up that to $7 million. Well, so that is $7 million of support, um, which comes from the state, um, but it's resources that is really state funded. We also have, this is something that it took me um, several, several times I had to ask, ask this question in order to get an answer. 
So at a board, in a finance uh, committee meeting, I said, what are the actual resources we're spending on athletics? And I, I asked the question once and the, the um, CFO for athletics answered the question, didn't answer my question really, didn't give me a number. So I was really looking for a number. I asked him again, I'm looking for a number. He didn't give me a number. The third time, so I had to ask the question three times in a row. Uh, third time, the CFO of the university jumped in and he said, well, if we look at the athletics budget, there are things in it that are not included um, not charged athletics, but actually spent for the benefit of athletics. And I said, what's that? And it came out to be primarily related to debt service that is paid for by the university um, out of the general fund uh, for the stadium, the new TCF um, uh, football stadium, which um, um, I think the total amount was about $17 million a year of debt service. So you have to add that to any number that athletics comes and talks about in terms of our budget. So at that time, it was about $108 million budget. So it's 125 now. But at the time, when you add 17 million to 108 million, you get 125. So right now, I don't know what the debt service is, but you could say if it's around 15, 17 million, and it could actually be more than that. Although I think the Athletes Village, we actually are charging the debt service to, um, to athletics. But if you look at that uh, number, the number grows a little bit. And I think other schools have also taken advantage of that. So any number that you see that's provided by the NCAA, um, whether it's in the Knight Commission database or, or whatever, I think is underreporting because I know the University of Minnesota underreports. I, uh, oh. I know that for a fact, having, having been in, in charge of finances when I was there, and I have tried to explain that fact to a number of uh, economists and others that they don't, they don't think that the NCAA can, can exclude those things. And I'm like, but the universities do. <laughs> and that's the way they, they subsidize it. Michael, I, we're going to need to kind of wind this down a little bit. But the, the, the pressing question that I would like you to answer for our listeners, if you could, is what do you know now about being a regent that you wish you'd known when you first jumped on board in 2015? Well, changes, I always knew change was hard, right? But it's super hard in higher ed. Higher ed has this, um, this ability to uh, shoot down anybody's you know, ideas for change by saying that, well, no, none of our peers are doing it. And I really, it really is hard to believe that um, that type of mentality exists in our institutions of higher learning that people are just unwilling to change because no one else is. Now, a number of things are changing, um, you know, inside and outside of athletics. It only took a pandemic, though, to, for a lot of these things, right? For the University of California to say that they're doing away with standardized testing, you know, there's a lot around that. But I've, I've been on the board for five years, and I've been saying we should go test optional because, you know, it, it the... Uh, the, test, the testing or standardized testing tends to discriminate against lower income people. And we, we already are making exceptions for a large number of people. Uh, so why don't we just say, look, we're gonna, we're gonna look at all the other aspects of your, your record and um, your achievements outside of school and we're gonna decide whether or not you belong here at the university. 
interest in this. So, and I was told, no, we're not doing that. In fact, I don't want to make this long, but I had a long discussion with an Ohio State trustee at a dinner one year and explaining this to her. And um, she said, that sounds great. Why don't you guys do it? I said, we don't do it because you don't do it. And she, and she said, oh. <laughs> and she understood right away what I was talking about. Exactly right. So, you know, the pandemic has made uh, standardized testing very difficult, if not impossible. So I think we are going to have to make that change. But that's just one, one thing where, um, you know, it's just uh, things are a lot harder um, at, at uh, institutions of higher learning in terms of change than, than I would have ever expected. Well, I think we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for spending some time with us talking about the very real issues that many regents and trustees are facing today with, with the way the space of higher ed is being disrupted and then how do we go about affecting change. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. Um, uh, I, hope, uh, I hope we can do this again. There are a lot of other points to cover and you know, we'll see what happens as we move forward. And, this uh, pandemic. Thanks, Michael. Once again, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. And I hope that you'll share some of these uh, podcasts with your colleagues around the country. I think it's important to have a dialogue around college athletics at this very critical time in higher education's uh, growth cycle. And I think there are more things that we ought to be discussing rather than just can we return to sports and can fans come to our games. These are really pivotal moments for college athletics and also for higher education and they require deeper discussions and deeper debates. Please share. Thanks for listening.